It's a great privilege to be able to uh, join you at your public meetings here at Sydney University. Uh, and it, I've been here now for uh, three of your public meetings, this being the third one, and I must confess to you that this is now the coldest lecture theatre I've been in. Uh, I don't understand it because it was quite warm really on the Tuesday, however, it's great to be with you. Just before I start, I'm actually going to pray. I'm going to pray three things. Firstly, that I'll be faithful to his word, the word of the gospel. Secondly, that I won't be boring. Uh, and thirdly, that God will certainly transform us as we hear his word taught to us. So please join with me as we pray to our great God. We thank you, dear Father, that we can gather together this afternoon to hear your word. And we pray, Father, that you will help me to teach your word faithfully and indeed well. And we pray, Father, that you will help us all to so listen carefully so that your word will cut us to the heart and transform us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, as he gathered with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, said these words, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is it that possesses the Apostle Paul to say such words that his life is really of no value whatsoever unless he has proclaimed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? According to 2 Corinthians 11, we learn something of what his life was like, the life that he lived for this seemingly sole purpose to proclaim this gospel to all and sundry. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, we read that the Apostle Paul had suffered trials, prison, shipwrecks, stonings, frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the country, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea. Do you get the impression he was in danger? He was someone who was always, well, kind of like an ancient equivalent of Indiana Jones, really. Someone who just expressed adventure, yet always found himself in dangerous situations. So much so that even when he had survived a shipwreck, you might recall, at the end of the book of Acts, he actually put his hand into some fire and was bitten by a snake straight away. It's just kind of an Indiana Jones kind of thing, isn't it? Except he's not scared of snakes, unlike Indy. It was the lifestyle of a madman, really. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul described his life before King Agrippa, the governor Festus shouted to Paul, You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Oh, they thought he was a fruitcake. They thought he was absolutely mad, as mad as a hatter. And he was, really, because of this gospel. And my fear is that, unlike the Apostle Paul, when we remind ourselves of what the Gospel is in a setting like a public meeting of the Sydney University Evangelical Union, the, the bastion of evangelicalism in the whole of the world, that we can somehow become so dangerously familiar with it that it doesn't kind of grip us like it grips the Apostle Paul. That it doesn't constrain us shape us, mould us and make us live such mad lifestyles to the eyes of this world when from the eyes of God it's not mad at all. And so 
over the course of the next three weeks, my hope and prayer is that as we look at this theme of gospel to the world, that it'll be like opening up a treasure chest. Indeed, with all the treasures of the gospel brought out for our enjoyment and not discarded like monopoly money, which is the temptation, I suspect, for people like you and me, having had the opportunities of hearing such faithful teaching in this part of the world. And so I want to ask you, what is the gospel? Because in the circles that most of us come from, I think most of us, some of you might be here for the first time and checking things out. If you are, I'm so glad that you're here. This is the place to be. In the circles that we move in, we often have gospel jargon, don't we? And we use the word gospel in everyday language, not just in Christian circles, but in non-Christian circles as well. So in the 60 seconds that you had conversations with each other on this question, if you talked about this, why don't you just call out, even if you didn't talk about it, I'm sure you could call out anyway, where do you hear the word gospel used in everyday conversation? Just shout it out. Gospel music, yeah, gospel music, that's right. Yep, and yeah, you feel kind of need to be black to do that, don't you? But but it's not it's not the case. But that's right. Gospel music. Any other words, phrases with gospel in it that you hear? Gospel truth. Yeah, don't take my words as gospel as well, which is a way. Of, that's the way that I think is kind of at the heart or the vibe of it in in the so-called non-Christian world, isn't it? Like the arts faculty rule the university. That's gospel. You know, that's that's <laughs> unquestionable. That's the way we use the word gospel these days. And in one sense, it's kind of right. But let's have a look at how it is that we use the gospel word in terms of our. Well, gospel circles, if I can put it that way. We use the phrase like gospel-minded people or gospel ministry or gospel growth or promoting the gospel or this is a gospel issue, which is a big thing for which people might divide over. And that's a big deal. And it sounds right, doesn't it? But not necessarily knowing what it means we can use these phrases. And so just for a few moments now, I want to well, introduce you to the word in terms of its linguistics. Uh, here is a very superficial Greek lesson. The New Testament was written in Greek and the word for gospel in English it translates into the word euangelion in Greek. Euangelion. Now euangelion is a compound word. It's got a prefix and it's got the other bit after the prefix. I'm, I'm sure we all know those ideas. So eu, not eu, but eu, stands for good or well. That's something nice to know, isn't it, for EUs? And angelia is the word for news or message or announcement. And so understandably, when you put these two words together, you get the phrase good news. And that's how people understand the word gospel. However, we've got to be careful with compound words, don't we? Because when you put a word together with another word, it doesn't necessarily mean what the combination of the root words are. So, for example, in the English, we have the word prevent, which means kind of stop something, doesn't it? But the prefix pre means go before. The word vent means go, and so it means basically to go before. But we use the word quite differently today to mean stop. So much so that there was a, a, an archbishop of days gone by in the 16th century who actually wrote a prayer in the 
Anglican denomination in their prayer book which actually says, uh, prevent us, O Lord, in all our ways. Great prayer, isn't it? Not in the 21st century, but in the 16th century it was a great prayer because prevent means go before us in all our ways. Do you see? So we've got to be so careful with the way words are used and context is always important. Now, when it comes to the word euangelion, I actually put to you that it's equally likely that the word gospel, euangelion, actually meant news well told or news flash. News flash. Because, you see, when the Old Testament was actually translated from the Hebrew into the Greek a number of years ago, that Greek version of the Old Testament is known as the LXX. That's the Roman numerals for 70. There were allegedly 70 translators who translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. Whenever the word euangelion was used, certainly in many parts, not all the time, but many parts of the Greek Old Testament, it simply meant news. And to indicate whether it was good news or not, they had to add an adjective, a describing word to euangelion. And so they added the word good, agathos, to it. Do you see? So therefore the word euangelion by itself really means, by and large, news or news flash. It's the announcement. Whether it's good or bad really depends on the perspective of where you're at. So, for example, if you go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Is that good news? Well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? It might be good news from the perspective of God. It might be good news from the perspective of his followers who long for justice in the judgment to come where the secrets of our hearts will be laid bare. But it's not good news for the unrepented sinner, is it? It's not good news for the one who is not saved. So it's news. It's important news. It's news worth hearing. That's the point. And when it comes to the natural usage of the word, in the ancient world, well, news of military victories, news of national achievements, were the most important announcements, the most important gospels, because they usually announced the emperor's achievements in first century Rome, in the days of the Apostle Paul, and indeed our Lord Jesus himself. It was the news that you were to hear, and depending on whether you were the enemy who was conquered or whether, we, whether you were on the winning side, the news was either good or bad, but the point was that it was news, do you see? But the language of gospel or news was known by God's people Israel long before the Roman Empire. Indeed, listen to the words of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful, literally the word is timely, how timely upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now there, literally in the Hebrew, it means telling the gospel. It's the kind of a verb form rather than the noun form. Who publishes peace, who brings good news, again, telling the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, here's the news, your God reigns. It's those three words that made up the good news. It was those three words that was literally timely or beautiful. The news flash is your God reigns. 
See, Isaiah foresaw the day when God's sovereign rule over all things would break into this world in a more open way and bring great blessing to the people of God. Ever since Isaiah spoke these words, the people of God longed for the arrival of the messenger with beautiful feet who would announce the unveiling of God's rule, of God's reign, of God's supremacy. And those feet, of course, belong to none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we meet the Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel, look at the very first words that he utters. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? The euangelion of God. The news of God saying the time, note the beautiful time of Isaiah, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the euangelion, in the gospel. In other words, the reign of God has broken into this world to set things right for the sake of his people. The reign of the kingdom, where Jesus himself is the king, therefore repent. Therefore turn back to God. Believe the news. Trust the news. Live appropriately to this news. See, at the heart of this gospel message, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is the idea of God's rule, his kingdom. So when the first Christians proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, they were not copying the gospel of the Roman emperors. No, no. Rather, they were exposing the emperors as frauds. For it was Jesus, not any king, but Jesus who is king. Jesus who rules. Jesus who reigns. And so whenever we Christians use gospel language, we must remember that the word gospel is shorthand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The gospel of King Jesus. That's the heart, the core, the substance of the gospel. The primary word, in fact, is not gospel, but the phrase, the Lord Jesus. So every time you use that word in, in any circle, do insert the words of the Lord Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus is the key. Indeed, the announcement of God's rule in Jesus is really a command to submit to his rule over our lives. And so as we proclaim the gospel, it's actually a command, a command to submit to the rule of our Lord. Trouble is that we prefer to speak of the gospel in terms of us, don't we? We naturally speak of what Jesus has done for us. If I were to ask people outside of this lecture theatre, having heard that, but outside of, in terms of others not here, but having heard what I've just said, I wonder whether they would say that the gospel is all about Jesus and dying and rising for us, him saving us from our sins, he forgiving us, justifying us, reconciling us. And that's true, it's part of the gospel, but whilst it's true, it's not the focus of the gospel. For the focus of the gospel is Jesus and not us. 
not us. Perhaps the summary slogan that best captures it, therefore, is the word that we keep the words we keep on saying that Jesus is Lord. But the gospel is not just an announcement of three words, Jesus is Lord. Proclaiming the gospel is not like saying these words as a mantra. Rather, the concept of Jesus is Lord is a summary slogan that can be unpacked by the whole Bible. And there are many other gospel summary slogans in the New Testament at least. So, for example, apart from this phrase, Jesus is Lord, or sentence really, There are other slogans that the Apostle Paul, for example, uses in that one speech from which I quoted a little bit right at the very beginning. Let me um, quote it to you again, this time a bit more of that chunk of text from Acts chapter 20. Look what he says there. Paul, again speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to, here's the phrase, the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom. See, that's a synonymous phrase to gospel of the grace of God. The kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole counsel of God. And when you look at it in context, you will see that the gospel of the grace of God, the kingdom, the whole counsel of God are really synonymous ways of speaking about the same thing, the one and the same gospel of the Lord Jesus. We use the phrase the whole counsel of God often to mean everything that God has revealed from Genesis to Revelation. Now, while you can argue that theologically, and I think that's fair enough at one level, exegetically, when you actually look at the passage in its context and the sentences and how they're constructed, you will see that it simply means the gospel. This announcement, this news of Jesus' lordship. But they're all summary slogans of the same thing. There are other summary slogans, aren't they? Like the word of the cross or Christ and him crucified or Jesus and the resurrection or God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. They're all summary slogans of this one gospel. And I want to put to you that gospel truth is kind of like that. It's a, it's a web of truth. In fact, I want to put to you that the gospel is kind of like a spider's web when you think about it. That is to say, at the centre of this web is a, is a circle. Let's go with that. I know it's not exactly a circle, so just for the purpose of the illustration, just go with me for a moment, okay? I'm sorry if you're an engineer and have to have things logically precisely, but art students, you just have a good time for a moment. All right? <laughs> just imagine that the circle at the centre of the web is really what the core truth of the Gospel is, that Jesus is Lord. And coming out of the circle of the, of the web are all these other strands of truth, interconnected truth, so that if you tamper with one part of the web, it affects the rest of the web, but depending on where you are in the web, it may not affect the centre as much. So, for example, there's all sorts of other truths, aren't there? But at their very periphery, or I would argue some of the peripheral truths that may not affect the centre as much, are things like, well how you celebrate communion at your church or your denomination, whatever it is. Because whether you have bread in a loaf that you pluck from or whether it's nicely neat cut up for you, whether you drink wine or 
or, or juice or, or, or cordial really doesn't matter, does it? Or whether you use one cup or two cups or a whole stack of cups for our hygienic reasons or for symbolic reasons really shouldn't be stuff that divide us, should it? It's one of those things that is kind of peripheral to the web. But when you actually get closer to the middle, to the, to the Jesus is Lord stuff, well, when you're dealing with topics like the atonement, substitutionary atonement, or, or the resurrection, or justification by faith, well, they're biggies. You tamper with that part of the web and the lordship of Jesus starts to come amok. Do you see? And so, therefore, depending on where you are on the web, it might actually affect what it looks like. If you tamper with it, I've tried to tamper with it in some sense, it kind of goes a bit funny. But if, the web, if you get that bit of the web right, you'll understand its implication in terms of how the rest of the web looks like. Now, having illustrated that and recognising that illustrations are never, ever perfect, I'm now going to ruin the entire illustration with another issue. For the Apostle Paul, there was something that was a gospel issue to him that you and I wouldn't think is a gospel issue. At least, I don't think so. And that had to do with food. Having just argued that the sacraments are no big deal whatsoever at one level, how we celebrate the sacraments, well, for the Apostle Paul, food was a gospel issue in one context. It was in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul opposed Peter to his face by the way he approached the issue of food. In fact, the way he approached the issue made it a justification by faith issue, says the Apostle Paul. You check it out for yourself. So therefore, I put to you that what makes an issue a gospel issue may not be the content, but might, might be the way you actually approach it. So, if we come back to the communion issue, if you are actually to say that you must celebrate communion this way, otherwise you will not get into heaven, well, you've Im immediately transported yourself right to the middle of the web, haven't you? You've actually made that into a gospel issue. In fact, it is a gospel issue if you're saying it's a heaven or hell thing. Do you get the point? No illustration is perfect, but I hope you understand the ideas when it comes to truth or the so-called web of truth. Now, for the next few moments though, what I want to explore are two major doctrinal truths that are very close to the centre. In fact, I would argue almost make, or indeed make up the centre of that web. Namely, the death and resurrection of Jesus because that is how Jesus arrives at his lordship. The first summary slogan that has to do with that centre is of Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. And now for the next moment or two, I want us to come face to face with this horrific moment in history where we meet our Lord on the cross. Where at the end of Mark's Gospel we read, and when the sixth hour had come, that's midday, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means my God, my God why have you forsaken me? 
the best things in life are experienced in relationship, aren't they? And the closer the relationship, the richer the potential of the experience. It doesn't matter how good the experience is, it's always better to share that experience with someone. I heard the story the other day of a man who actually went to play golf with his friends and someone actually came onto the fairway and said, did you see it? Did you see it? And the other guy said, what, are you talking about your ball? Oh, no, we haven't seen any balls come. He said, no, no, I'm not talking about a ball. Did you see it? He said, what are you talking about? Well, I, I scored a hole in one. He said, oh, that's great, wonderful for you. Well, what's the problem? He said, well, I was playing golf alone. Can you imagine scoring a hole in one and playing golf alone? I mean, from having heard that story, you just never want to play golf alone, on the off chance that you might score a hole in one. I mean, that, that's just the pits, isn't it? That's just depressing, really. Those kinds of experiences to be shared. I often uh, get to see my children play their various sports and I'm, uh, it's a great privilege and opportunity. Uh, my, one of my daughters actually plays basketball but when at the age of 11 their basketball matches are more like rugby sevens. I don't know whether you've seen them or not where they actually grab the ball of each other and they're actually on the ground sometimes trying to grab the ball and pass it to their mates and one, my girl actually knocked down three fellas on the way on one particular incident and I was so proud of that really. And I, I just, just wanted to share it with my family because those are kinds of experiences are to be shared. I'll, I'll remember that moment for life, aren't they? That's why I want to share it with you. <laughs> The closer the relationship, the richer the experience, they're meant to be shared, aren't they? The worst things in life are lack of relationship. When you can't share those experiences. When the boy of your dreams, when the girl of your dreams says no, it hurts, doesn't it? I'm not meaning to be superficial in that. I know it hurts when there's divorce that is experienced in the family why that hurts the most and I know that with a group this size some of you may well have been touched by that one way or another and I'm very sorry when there's death in the family it's even worse still because you can no longer relate to that person and it robs you of that relationship my mother passed away two days after September 11. I saw her take a last breath together with my father and believe you me, it was one of the most, if not the most, numbing week of my life. And it pains me that my daughter, another daughter, who is just like my mum, can't actually relate to her. Even though she's just like her. She's just as stubborn as my mother. She's just like her in all so many ways but they can't actually speak to each other. When we come to this account you know it's a moment so horrific that darkness comes upon the land for three hours we are told. The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom but it's at the end of the three hours that we learn what has taken place when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you see, no relationship in the universe has been as close as the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. And somehow, 
our sin has now caused such devastation in the Godhead that God has forsaken God. This is what Jesus was referring to in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out, Please, my Father, please take this cup from me. For the cup was all the raging ocean of righteous anger that should have been poured out on you and me but diverted away from us unto Jesus. For Jesus drank the cup down to its very dregs. And he did so because he said, note, and this was his primary motive for dying. This was his primary motive for taking upon himself the anger of his Father in place of us. What was his primary motive? Not my will, but your will be done. You see why the focus of the Gospel is Jesus? Is God himself? Because, you see, his primary motive in dying was not for you, was not for me, even though that's where we want to focus the gospel. His primary motive in dying was to obey his Father. Did you note that? To obey his God and Father. But in obeying his Father, he knew that his death would save others like you and me. But as we all know, this gospel doesn't end here. Jesus didn't stay dead. For here is another strand in the web which is in the centre, so to speak. In fact, it has to be at the very centre, doesn't it? It's that gospel summary slogan of being Lord and Christ. And perhaps one of the best texts, in my view, that captures this is the address that the Apostle Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. That great day when there were people speaking in tongues and there were tongues of fire apparently uh, falling on the crowd, etc. And towards the climax of his speech in Acts chapter 2, we read these words from the lips of the Apostle Peter, This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There is a sense, you see, in which Jesus has risen up from the dead to become Lord and he is Lord after his resurrection in a way that he is not Lord before his resurrection. If you've not heard of that idea before, that's a question to ask Rowan Kemp at ANCON. There are many, many questions to ask. It is an incredible phenomenon that is taking place here. By being raised up from the dead, he arrives at his Christness, so to speak in a way that he was not the Christ beforehand, the king, the ruler. Remember at the end of Matthew 28, it's only after he rises from the dead that he says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, in a way that it wasn't before his resurrection. 
for now he rules over death as Lord and his victory is our victory his resurrection is our resurrection but please again remember what the focus is the focus of the gospel is not us but his lordship his kingship his supremacy remember Jesus reigns supreme he reigns supreme over every star and every galaxy why he reigns supreme over all of the earth from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean he reigns supreme over all weather patterns all hurricanes and cyclones and all movements of the earth and earthquakes He reigns supreme over all chemical processes, whether they're microscopic viruses or flus or the way antibiotics work. He reigns supreme over every government and every tribe and every language and every nation. Why, he reigns supreme over every hotspot in the world, including Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. He reigns supreme over all the unsettled things that have taken place of late and even over the shooting that took place in Virginia Tech University in the course of this week. He does reign supreme. Oh, please pray for our brothers and sisters on that campus. In fact, I think it's almost now that they're actually going to be running a memorial service on that campus where our sister group there, the InterVarsity group, is actually doing that and in the supremacy of Christ they are adorning the gospel in the way that they are living and speaking and caring for the families of those who were killed and indeed caring for those who are Christians in their group, none of whom were killed to our knowledge but who actually have many friends who were killed. Or Jesus reigns supreme. And he reigns supreme over all governments, doesn't he? He reigns supreme over George Bush and John Howard and Tony Blair. Why, he reigns supreme over Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. As a man named Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one single inch over planet Earth over which Jesus does not say, Mine! He rules. He reigns. But that's why when we come to explore what is the goal of the gospel, what is the goal of the gospel, I want to quote a man by the name of John Piper who is a Baptist minister in the United States and I'm sure a number of you have read his books. I think it's a lovely sentence. The goal of the gospel is Jesus seen and savoured for all his glory as Lord. And he's absolutely right. The gospel is centred on Jesus and not us. You see, justification is not an end in itself, neither is the forgiveness of sins or the imputation of righteousness, neither is escape from hell or the entrance into heaven or freedom from disease or liberation from bondage or decay or eternal life or justice or mercy. None of these facets of the gospel is the goal of the gospel. Only one thing is seeing and savouring God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's why the Apostle Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why he can also say in the very same book of Philippians, for this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
That word for rubbish is dung, it's poo. It's sewerage material. Everything else is sewerage material in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That was Paul's desire. That's why he lived the lifestyle of a madman because the goal of his gospel was Jesus, is Jesus. That's why to the watching world he was mad but he wasn't mad. And we ought to do the same, shouldn't we? Savour his supremacy. For when we contemplate who Jesus is and what he has done, why it ought to take our breath away. It ought to intellectually and emotionally stagger us. Does it? So in closing, I've got a couple of questions for you. Three questions, in fact. In terms of the gospel and you. Is Jesus the goal of your life? Maybe that you've been coming for public meetings all the time. It may be that you're here for the first time. Maybe that you've grown up in church all these years. It may be that you're on the committee. It doesn't matter. Is Jesus the reason for every decision, every thought, every action of your life? Is he the goal of your life? Secondly, do you delight in his lordship? If you can say he is the goal of your life, do you actually delight in that? I mean, compared to living with him as Lord, does everything else seem like sewerage material, like it was for the Apostle Paul? Because if you delight in his lordship, it will have an enormous impact on your life, wouldn't it? In fact, it would teach you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. If you delight in the lordship of Jesus, then playing around with pornography on the internet or magazines or watching those scenes that you shouldn't be, well, that will just be sewerage material compared to knowing Jesus. Or if you struggle with gossip or slander or lying or greed, well, that will be sewerage material compared to knowing Jesus. Even some of the good things like a hole-in-one soccer, that will be sewerage material compared to knowing. Do you see what we're getting at here? If you delight in the lordship of Jesus then he will so rule your life such that there will be a kick in your step at the thought of serving this one who reigns supreme. It will change you. It will change you like nothing else in this world. And finally, if you do delight in his lordship, are you going to follow Jesus in living your life and in dying your death to help others submit to the lordship of Jesus? Are you going to desire for others to delight in him as you delight in him? Because that's what you'll naturally do, isn't it? In fact, you'd be willing to give up all 
in living your life and dying your death to help others. Giving up all. And you who come to this august institution with all the gifts and all the abilities that you have and you do have them, you really do. It's kind of an occupational hazard of being a university student. You're incredibly gifted people. But remember what gifts are. They're gifts. They're not yours to be proud of. They're gifts to be used for the sake of others. And so I want to draw your attention to a bit of history because, you see, in February 1885, there were a group of people called the Cambridge Seven that you might have known. I'm sure many of you have heard of them. They went to China. Incredibly good-looking men, aren't they? They went to China and and the top left-hand one is C.T. Studd, a man whose name may well be familiar to a number of us. C.T. Studd actually studied at Eton and Cambridge. He was the elite of the elite as far as the world was concerned. He was tall, he was athletic, he was a cricketer. In fact, he played cricket for England and he played cricket for England in the original test match that gave rise to the Ashes series. Did you know that? In fact, his name is written on the urn that contains the ashes. This man gave up everything to follow Jesus. To quote C.T. Studd, he said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. They were his words. And he gave up all in order to tell people in China and eventually in India and then died in abject poverty in Africa to tell people about Jesus. I'm praying for a Sydney seven. But I think we can do better than that, actually, given our resources, given our opportunities, given our passport that can take us to everywhere in the world. Everybody loves us, even though they don't know that we exist. (laughs) But they do love our passport and we can go anywhere. But his testimony is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus did, isn't it? Remember the Lord Jesus. He lived his life and he died his death in loving obedience to his Father to save others. And I want to ask you, will you do likewise? Will you be willing to live the lifestyle of a madman for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we can come together this afternoon to hear something of your word. And we pray that your gospel will indeed change us to grow more like Jesus and to be willing to give up all just like him for your sake and to delight in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.